Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a peach iced tea white claw. What do you have in Jenny? I'm drinking a rum and coke, and in this week's episode, we're looking at the cases of Kennedy Brewer and LaVon Brooks, two stories of wrongful convictions. This was requested by our Patreon supporter and friend, Jonathan. So thank you very much, Jonathan, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On May 3rd, 1992, three-year-old Christine Jackson was abducted from her home in Macon, Mississippi. Her mother, Gloria Jackson's boyfriend, Kennedy Brewer, was watching Christine and her two younger siblings while Gloria went out with friends that evening. When Gloria returned home, everyone went to bed. The kids slept in the same bedroom as Kennedy and Gloria, and Christine slept in a wooden pallet at the end of the bed near a broken window. When morning came, Christine was gone. The family frantically searched, but she was nowhere to be found. They called the police and reported her missing. Police brought in search dogs and Navy helicopters to find Christine. She was sadly found two days later in a creek 500 yards from her home. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Her body was covered in scratch marks. Following the discovery of Christine's body, police took DNA, including cheek swabs, from everyone who had been near Christine's house in the 24 hours prior to her disappearance. Police suspected Jackson and Brewer and arrested them both without having a motive or evidence. Dr. Stephen Hain, a go-to Mississippi pathologist, performed the autopsy. He found marks that appeared to be bite marks on Christine's body. He suggested Dr. Michael West, a forensic dentist in Mississippi who had worked with Hain in the past, be brought in. Dr. West had carved out a niche for himself as an innovative bite mark expert. He had developed a unique system to find and identify bite marks, which he called the West Phenomenon. He used a black light and yellow goggles to find and identify bite marks no other doctor could see. Dr. West identified at least 19 bite marks on Christine. He requested dental molds from the suspects, which were then created. Dr. West compared the molds to the bites discovered on Christine. He concluded that the bites could belong to only Kennedy Brewer. He was soon indicted and the prosecutor decided to seek the death penalty. Brewer's trial began in March 1995. The prosecution focused on Dr. West's testimony and little else. In response, the defense introduced Dr. Richard Suvaran, a licensed dentist and founding member of the American Board of Forensic Odontology, who testified that the marks were not human bite marks at all, but were insect bites that the body sustained from being left in the water for days. Suvaran argued that it would be all but impossible to leave repeated bite mark impressions with only the top two. After two hours of deliberation, a jury declared Brewer guilty and sentenced him to death. While incarcerated, Brewer was only released from his cell one hour a day. After being on death row for over four years, the court appointed Brewer an appellate attorney. The Mississippi Supreme Court denied his request for an appeal, and shortly after that, the Mississippi Attorney General's office rescheduled his execution date. Brewer wrote to the Innocence Project, which was a new organization at the time, asking for their help in getting DNA testing. Semen was recovered from Christine's body, but at the time of her murder, DNA evidence wasn't advanced enough to get a profile. The Innocence Project took on Brewer's case, and the sample was sent to a lab in 2001. 
Their results unequivocally excluded Brewer as the perpetrator. Brewer's defense team and consultants from the Innocent Project thought this meant Brewer would be freed, but that was not the case. The state still thought there was ample evidence to convict Brewer, even if the DNA proved he did not rape Christine. The state decided to retry Brewer. The following year, Brewer's conviction was vacated and he was moved from death row to pretrial detention. As Brewer's team was preparing for his retrial, they learned of a very similar case that had taken place just 18 months before Christine's murder and involved Brewer's family friend. On September 15, 1990, three-year-old Courtney Smith was abducted from her bedroom at her home in Brooksville, Mississippi, just one mile away from Christine's home. She shared the room with her two sisters, one older and one younger. Her 26-year-old uncle was asleep in the next room at the time of her disappearance. Noxabee County Police rounded up all the men who had been at Courtney's house before her abduction, arrested them, and took cheek swabs and other DNA samples. Two days later, Courtney's body was discovered 80 yards away from her home in a pond. Dr. Stephen Hayne performed the autopsy on Courtney shortly after. He found that she had been strangled and sexually assaulted and noticed possible bite marks on her wrists. Just like in Christine's case, he called on Dr. Michael West. Dr. West confirmed that the bite marks on the victim's body were human and took dental impression samples from 12 possible suspects. Ten days after Courtney's murder, police interviewed her five-year-old sister, Ashley. Courtney's sister said that she had seen the perpetrator abduct the victim and identified the perpetrator as Ty T. or LaVon Brooks, her mother's ex-boyfriend. Ashley said Ty T. got Courtney and carried her off. Brooks was interrogated. That same day, West took a sample of Brooks' teeth at the local jail. West later said that he compared Brooks' sample to the marks on Courtney's body and found that two of Brooks' teeth, quote-unquote, matched the marks on Courtney. He said Brooks made the marks with his top two front teeth and claimed without a doubt that they matched the marks on Courtney's body. Brooks was then charged with capital murder. The state sought the death penalty. Brooks described the experience as a nightmare. Brooks' trial began in January 1992 in Nockabee County, Mississippi. Ashley testified that she saw Brooks abduct Courtney, although her testimony has several contradictions. In addition to the child's unreliable testimony, the state's case rested on the bite mark evidence presented by Dr. West, who testified that, quote, it could be no one but LaVon Brooks that bit this girl's arm, end quote. Brooks' defense attorneys presented an alibi defense that he was working at a club on the night of the murder, was seen by 12 people, and did not have an opportunity to commit the crime. The defense also challenged Wes's credentials and findings. After deliberating for about nine hours, the jury convicted Brooks of capital murder. Prior to his sentencing, 
Brooks told the courtroom that he was innocent, but he was still sentenced to life in prison. At the time of his sentencing, Brooks' daughter had just been born, and Brooks told his girlfriend to, quote, go on with your life, end quote. Brooks spent his time in prison reading the Bible and drawing. His art especially eased him and took his mind off the pains of incarceration. After working with Brewer, the Innocence Project team began investigating the case of Brittany Smith and LaVon Brooks. To Brewer's defense team, it was obvious that Christine and Courtney's murders were committed by the same offender. Yet when they brought it up to law enforcement, they said there was no way it could have been one offender because, quote unquote, the first person was locked up. Brewer remained in jail for over five more years until his release on bail in August of 2007. Through the defense's work with Brewer, they were able to get testing for Brooks's case. If they were able to link the DNA in both cases, they could use it during retrials. The DNA evidence was sent off and showed that there was only one source from the swab and it was not Brewer. When law enforcement sent the DNA off, they also sent evidence that Brewer's lawyers did not know existed, including the cheek swabs that were taken by the rounded up suspects in both the Brooks and Brewer cases. The evidence from the Brooks case was old and deteriorated, but the other case's swabs were able to be tested. The lab was able to identify the swabs and DNA from Brewer's case to Justin Albert Johnson. Johnson lived near both Courtney and Christine at the time of the murders. He was an initial suspect in both crimes and was the only suspect with a history of sexually assaulting women and girls. The same sheriff's officer investigated both crimes and the same district attorney prosecuted both crimes. Twice they overlooked evidence pointing to Johnson. West quote-unquote excluded him after finding that Johnson's teeth failed to match what West said were bite marks on the victim. The defense team brought their findings to the Mississippi Attorney General's office. Johnson would go on to confess to both Courtney and Christine's murders. On February 15, 2008, both Brooks and Brewer were exonerated. Without Johnson's confession, Brooks would not have been exonerated since there was no DNA evidence in his case. In total, Brooks served 16 years in prison and Brewer 15 years. Brewer was the first person exonerated in the state of Mississippi using post-conviction DNA testing. Following their exonerations, their defense teams went to the Mississippi legislature in hopes of creating a compensation fund for those wrongfully incarcerated. In 2009, a law was passed to compensate wrongfully convicted people at $50,000 for each year of imprisonment, with a cap at $500,000. That same year, Brewer and Brooks filed a civil lawsuit against Drs. West and Hain for $18 million. That lawsuit was dismissed in 2014 after a judge ruled that West and Hain were immune from damages. The Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals upheld the dismissal in 2017. As for Dr. West, people began to take him less seriously by the late 1990s, yet Mississippi and Louisiana prosecutors continued to use him, trial courts kept allowing him to testify, and appellate courts in both states kept upholding the crazy things he'd claim on the witness stand. In total, he testified in 25 capital murder cases. 
1994, West became the first person to be suspended from the American Board of Forensic Odontology, and by 2006, he was forced to resign from the board. Although he has since come out against bite mark analysis, he stands by his testimony. Dr. West is now retired. In 2009, Dr. Haynes' contract to perform autopsies was not renewed by the state of Mississippi, and he was terminated from his position. He regularly admitted to performing 1,500 autopsies every year for over two decades, about 80 to 90% of the homicide cases in the state. The American Board of Pathology, however, says doctors should do no more than 250 per year. By 2011, he had testified as a witness in about 40 of the 62 Mississippi death row cases at the time. Dr. Hain was never board certified in forensic pathology, yet repeatedly said he was board certified in court. He has also been criticized for his sloppiness and questionable diagnosis by his own peers. In March 2021, the College of American Pathologists announced that they had concluded an investigation into accusations against Dr. Hain and concluded that no action needed to be taken against him. Both Brewer and Brooks went on to get married. Sadly, LaVon Brooks passed away due to colon cancer on January 24, 2018 at the age of 58. He is remembered as a, quote, kind, selfless spirit, a loving father, friend, husband, and uncle, a cook, an artist, a man who managed to find all the joy he could in life despite nearly two decades of wrongful imprisonment for crimes he did not commit, end quote. In March 2020, Kennedy Brewer's mother died, and he had a stroke a few days later. Thankfully, he is recovering, but it's unlikely he will be able to return to work anytime soon. He enjoyed spending his free time with his friends and family. Before we get into our thoughts and discussion, I did want to mention that there is a fundraiser page for Kennedy Brewer, so we will leave that in the links as well. Del, what are your thoughts on these two stories? I think that these two stories highlight how unreliable some expert witnesses can be and the hubris that they have when not being able to admit that they're wrong. And it's sad that we are putting people in prison and ending people's lives based on these types of testimony. I think that bite mark analysis is pseudoscience. And I know that we're going to talk about that shortly. I think that it's unfortunate that Dr. West and Dr. Hain was protected from civil liabilities. I definitely don't think that they should have those protections. I think that if you go about promoting pseudoscience and doing things that take away the lives and time and freedom of innocent people, you should be held liable, either you or your employer, someone. I do think it's good that Mississippi now has a law where they compensate people for wrongful conviction. Hopefully along with that law, it's not just compensating people, but also decreasing the number of people that get wrongfully incarcerated. 
I think the last thing is just how weird it was that the police totally discounted the fact that it could be one person. I sort of understand when it's separate police departments and, you know, you have a thing where maybe there's not a sharing of all the information, but this was in the same county and it was similar detectives working on both of these cases. So the fact that they weren't able to connect those dots themselves is really strange to me and just screams laziness on their part. Like if someone is telling you like, hey, we have evidence that it's the same killer, you know, it's the same method that they use for murder. It's the same type of victim. The fact that you shrug it off like, oh, we already arrested someone and wouldn't stop for two seconds to think, oh, you're right. That is really similar. Maybe we should look into this more. It's just, it's always strange because it's like, it's your job to arrest the correct person, not just to arrest anybody for a crime to say that you solved the case. What are your thoughts? I completely agree with everything you said. It's mind-blowing to think that they didn't think it was related somehow. And I really do think, I mean, they were so close to getting Johnson and he got so lucky. And if they had caught him, Christine Jackson would be alive still. I don't think there's any question about that. And that's really upsetting. And I know we talk about how unreliable eyewitness testimony can be, but if 12 people were saying that they saw LaVon Brooks at work that night, all 12 people I don't think would be lying. He had worked at this club for a while and he did a lot of different jobs at the club. So I would think he really would be well known to the people that were going there. So again, it's just ridiculous and lazy work. And we're really lucky too that Johnson did confess because without that, Brooks would have been in jail still, which is really upsetting to think about too. And I agree with everything you said about some expert witnesses and their testimony being unreliable. And that's a really big issue with our justice system. And it's hard because, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but, you know, as a juror going in there, you won't necessarily think to question, oh, are they using like ethical, scientifically backed, up-to-date practices? I would probably assume that what was presented to me would be the truth. So what do you really think? I mean, if someone is telling you unequivocally, yes, it has to be this person, you would probably think that. It's really hard to understand how stuff can be used in court, especially a capital murder case where sentencing people to life and death, that it's ridiculous that this is being used. And Dr. West's techniques were being questioned in 1994. And they were not the only people that were exonerated after his testimony, possibly Haynes's too. But there were, I think, at least four other people that ended up being wrongfully convicted and thankfully exonerated because of Dr. West. And we kind of talked about this. And there's a documentary that we're going to, we'll link below about this case. It's called Mississippi Innocence. And in it, they mention how other state officials in other cases have showed remorse and reopened cases when they found out like, hey, this expert witness was not necessarily the most trustworthy person. But Mississippi has not done that at all, which is really, really upsetting. And 
I think this case really does sum up so many issues that we have with the American justice system. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And the fact that over 30 convictions based on Dr. West's testimony has been overturned definitely should tell you something. Like, how many people need to go to jail wrongfully for you to say that, hey, maybe we shouldn't have this guy testifying anymore? I understand that, you know, maybe the first couple times you're unsure, but once you're hitting double digits, some type of fail safe needs to be put in place. Even if you look at it from a purely selfish motive as a state and prosecution, you look foolish and you have egg on your face with all these convictions being overturned because you allow this unreliable person to testify uh, to junk science, essentially. Absolutely. As we mentioned, bite mark identification was used to identify Brewer and Brooks as perpetrators. Bite mark evidence an aspect of forensic odontology is the process by which odontologists, dentists, attempt to match marks found at crime scenes with the dental impressions of suspects. Although bite mark evidence has been used across the country in many criminal prosecutions, there is no real scientific support or research into the accuracy or reliability of bite mark evidence. It is often introduced as being close to DNA in terms of accuracy, but there is no scientific validation for the notice that a person's dentation is unique to him or her in the same way that fingerprints or DNA are unique to each individual. Bite marks are often found at the scene of violent crimes, murders, assaults, and sexual assaults, and are extremely difficult to accurately investigate. Part of this is because victims of violent crimes can suffer multiple injuries, and what looks like a bite could actually be an unrelated injury. This is because unlike a dental impression at a doctor's office, bite marks are found on materials like skin, clothes, and soft tissue. Human skin is elastic. It swells, heals, and it can deform or warp a bite so that it is not aligned properly. Skin also holds tension and releases in different ways as you move, which would affect the impression teeth might leave on a person. This means that if the same person bites two different people, the impression or bruises they would leave wouldn't necessarily match. And the way that these factors impact bite marks have never been studied among living people and likely never will. Furthermore, quote-unquote experts often use pictures to compare a person's dentation to the bite marks on the victim, increasing the unreliability of bite mark evidence. Human dentition, the way in which our teeth are arranged, has not been proven to be unique to each individual. Another problem with bite mark evidence is its similarity to other quote-unquote sciences such as fingerprint analysis and firearm analysis. They are subjective to the person evaluating the evidence. Different experts have found widely different results when looking at the same bite mark evidence. 
Such subjectivity has no place being touted as science in the courtroom as it is extremely persuasive to a jury, especially where someone has been wrongfully accused. Connecticut, Michigan, Nevada, Texas, and Wyoming have since adopted quote-unquote change in science statutes or court rulings. While changed science statutes enable people who are wrongfully convicted to come back to court to have their cases reviewed, they don't prevent people from being wrongfully convicted based on flawed forensic science in the first place. In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences released a report that raised issues about the, quote, substantial rates of erroneous results, end quote, in forensic disciplines, including bite marks, and highlighted its lack of scientific validation. Six years after this report, doctors Ian Petty and Adam Freeman, the former president of the American Board of Odontology, the ABFO, alarmed by an uptick in wrongful convictions based on bite mark analysis, set out to determine whether they could establish the reliability of their work. They carried out a study which asked ABFO certified dentists to use a quote-unquote decision tree to analyze sets of bite marks, some from their own case files. Among other basic questions, they were asked to determine whether they were looking at a quote-unquote bite mark, something suggestive of a bite mark, something that was not a bite mark, or whether they had insufficient information to make a determination. In all but a few cases, participants could not agree on whether or not they were looking at a bite mark. Many forensic dentists have come to reject the discipline as unreliable. Additionally, the Texas Forensic Science Commission called for an end to the use of bite mark testimony in criminal trials in 2016 after conducting a six-month investigation into its usage and determining that it, quote, does not meet the standards of forensic science, end quote. Science changes rapidly with new information and research, but laws do not. That is one of the major hurdles in keeping bite mark comparison evidence out of criminal proceedings. And despite the rising chorus of voices in the scientific community and beyond calling out the unvalidated use of bite marks, some continue to believe in bite mark evidence and the ABFO still supports its use. Nearly a quarter of the 2,601 people who have been exonerated since 1989 were wrongfully convicted based on false or misleading forensic evidence, like bite marks, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Del, any other thoughts on bite mark analysis? No, I think that everything that we described emphasizes my opinions on the fact that bite mark analysis is pseudoscience and has no place in the courtroom and definitely has no place in determining the freedom and life of someone. What about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think something that might help is the ABFO saying that they don't support its use in the courtroom. Who knows if it would still happen. I would like to see more of these laws be updated according to what is relevant and what is scientifically found. Like we said, science is always changing, so it is difficult. But I don't know if we had someone like fact-checking or proofing whatever, I think that would help. Obviously, like these updates would be costly and time-consuming, but 
like we've said before, if we're talking about someone living or dying for a crime they didn't commit, I think it's worth spending the money and the extra time on improving something like this. I absolutely agree with you. Like, this is a person's life. You know, I don't think that the excuse of it might take us some time or it might be costly is really a good justification for not doing it. Absolutely. Uh, Next, we'll take a little bit of a look at life after exoneration. On average, an exonerated death row survivor spends 11 and a half years behind bars for crimes they did not commit. Exonerees proven to have been wrongfully convicted through post-conviction DNA testing spend on average more than 14 years behind bars. The agony of prison life Complete loss of freedom and time, years of separation from friends and family, and past inability to establish a career are all factors that continue to impact exonerees. Additionally, exonerees are often released with no money, housing, transportation, health services, or insurance, and a criminal record that is sometimes not cleared regardless of innocence. Exonerees are often denied access to reentry programs and state aid for the formerly incarcerated or those on parole precisely because they were exonerated. Because of this, many may suffer from PTSD and other serious health issues, very limited employment prospects, lack of access to training programs, and challenges with securing and keeping stable housing, among other roadblocks to reclaiming a semblance of a normal life after death row. The Innocence Project spotlighted exoneree David Robinson, who was released from prison in 2018 after his murder conviction was overturned. Robinson's lawyer, Jonathan Potts, told CBS This Morning, quote, When David was first arrested, Bill Clinton was president and Amazon was a book company, end quote. When Robinson was released 18 years later, he had to restart his life. He had no home, no money, and no credit. Potts continues saying, quote, essentially, you are being reborn, end quote. Not only has Robinson found it challenging to find a job, He has difficulty obtaining an ID card, a bank account, and health insurance. Robinson's wife, Pat, said, quote, You can't have a bank account because you have to have your residence for six months established. And then you have the other hurdles, like health insurance. One of the questions they ask is if they have been incarcerated. So you have a harder time getting health insurance, end quote. The government's public recognition of the harm inflicted upon a wrongfully convicted person helps to foster the healing process while assuring the public that the government, regardless of fault, is willing to take ownership of its wrongs or errors. The federal government, the District of Columbia, and 33 states have compensation statutes of some form. Even in states that do have compensation laws on the books for those who were wrongfully convicted, some refuse to compensate exonerated death row survivors in spite of the horrors they've faced. There are complex reasons for this, including arcane and arbitrary loopholes in state laws exploited by prosecutors, courts, and lawmakers, 
laws that are not retroactive, and perceived public unpopularity of such programs and the pressure to look quote-unquote tough on crimes. Uh, Del, do you have any thoughts on all of that? And then what do you think should be done to help exonerated people re-enter society? I think that it is definitely a flaw in our system that we don't do more to help individuals that have been released from prison and jail, especially those that were wrongfully convicted. I understand that the government wants to save face in a way, but at the end of the day, I think that they owe it to those that they wrongfully put in jail to make sure that they have something to come home to and a home to come to in general once they are released. I don't think that it's good enough to just say, oh, we're sorry for this and for them to be able to move on like nothing happened because the exoneree can't do that. So I definitely think that we need to create laws that specifically help exonerees with re-entry, whether that be loosening the requirements to get an ID, whether that's making sure that their background checks are cleared in a sufficient amount of time. They shouldn't be waiting forever for their background checks to reflect the fact that they were exonerated. And I think just making sure that they're is money in place to help support them with any other social needs that they may have as they come out of prison and work to be able to be self-sufficient again. What about you? I agree. I think there needs to be some kind of stipend for wrongfully convicted people coming out. And like you said, more general support for people re-entering society. Because what is in place is almost a guaranteed way for people to not thrive in their life and possibly return to prison or jail, which is really upsetting. I mean, I think at the very least, like, give them a bus pass, pay for a cab to get somewhere, make sure someone is going to pick them up, whether it's a family member, a friend, a social worker, something like that. It's ridiculous. I liked what you said about ensuring like the background check would be approved within a reasonable amount of time. It was really shocking for me to read that a lot of programs that do exist cannot help exonerees. And I would think that's almost like a slap in the face. You served time for something you didn't commit. Now you're out and you're left to just like pick up the pieces by yourself which is really upsetting. There's so many hoops to jump through and it's really frustrating to see. There are some nonprofits in place to help exonerees, but I do, like you said, I think it is a state responsibility to an extent. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that that also comes with just making sure that you are creating the environment where people are able to openly talk about what happened to them without judgment. Because unfortunately, even when someone is exonerated, there's always that judgment of, well, maybe you didn't commit that crime, but you might have committed another one. Hopefully there is something in terms of just public education that can happen and make sure that people know their rights and know what 
can and cannot be done in terms of receiving compensation because a lot of times, unfortunately, they put up so many barriers that people just give up on receiving what's rightfully theirs because it's just too hard. And so hopefully a part of just criminal justice reform in general is looking at that and also making sure that even if a person was exonerated, that they're still able to utilize programs that uh, specifically help those that have been incarcerated. Because whether you deserve to be there or not, you're going to be facing similar struggles. Absolutely. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the stories of Kennedy Brewer and LaVon Brooks. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on the BTK killer. As always, stay safe.